Wednesday morning. If you did not listen to last week's podcast, the part one of abortions, I'd recommend that you go back and listen to that. Today, Dr. John is going to be talking about part two in a multi-part series where he's breaking down how to think about abortion so that you can be better equipped to speak about it yourselves. Well, good morning, folks. Um, some of you will have heard bits of what I'm going to say before, um, but you're very kind. In fact, more than kind, you have taught me something very important at that level. Uh, when I first started doing this, I said, well, I've done my bit. Um, I can retire. But a lot of people said no. And don't be worried about telling stories you've used before. Uh, there's a good reason for using your own stories because you can't then be caught up by someone of the PC variety saying you stole that from X or Y. Um, and what Jesus tells us to do is to go and share what he has done for us. So where a particular story is very apposite, I use it because Christ did that, didn't he? And we're following him. Uh, he was the greatest storyteller of all time. And he never wrote a book, but he's had more influence on literature than any other person. Uh, he's had more influence on the intellectual development of the world than any other person. And the liberal elite who rule us just don't want to acknowledge that. Uh, but it's blatantly, obviously true. So um, uh, there will be some overlap, but that's fine. Uh, John, John the Apostle, at the end of his life, uh, was famously uh, described as when he was asked to preach, he would sometimes just say, love one another and sit down. And they said, but you said that last time. And his response was, but you're still not doing it. That's the gospel. Love one another. Yes, but you can only do it with help. It's not a human attribute. Now, what I talked about last week is, just a very quick review, is that abortion was a very important process for me to understand. Uh, to it changed my life in, in many ways. Uh, I wasn't anti-abortion. In fact, I was pro-choice over rubella babies. Uh, and I explained how that came about and then explained that the key question to ask pro-choice people and pro-life people, because... The pro-life people need to emphasize something they skate over. And the pro-choice people need to think about it too. And that is, if you're going to do an abortion, what does that necessarily mean that you have already accepted as true? How can you logically do an abortion and not feel guilty about it? And there, there are ways to do that. But they carry consequences, which is what this next lecture is about. I think to do an abortion and not feel bad about it, the only good that you have in mind is fulfilled by that action. That is why I could facilitate an abortion for a woman who was facing a huge risk of serious congenital abnormalities in her baby because of rubella before we had a vaccine. Um, we never talked about abortion. We simply said this pregnancy has gone wrong, hasn't it? And they said yes, and they said, well, you could start again. Would you like that? Yes. And so they came into hospital, and it was done on the ordinary list, although it was illegal, but it wasn't called an abortion, of course, simply a DNC. And I felt no, nothing wrong about that because I didn't think about it until years later when I started to think, and I described that last week. Now, what I want to do this week is, is look at the way we can present 
the, the issue in a low-tension way that's obviously honest and will draw them into discussion that they haven't had before. And you follow Aquinas' advice, which is when you're going to talk about something difficult with an opponent, first make his case for him better than he can do it. That sounds strange, but Aquinas was very smart um, because then they relax when they say, okay, he's, he's shot himself in the foot. I don't need to do anything. So I will say, to open up, we're going to talk about the consequences of abortion um, and why and why they're important and what impact they should have on public policy. So, if I'm talking to a medical audience, I, it's easier than to a general audience, but the general audience can follow it perfectly well. There were supposed to be a lot more abortions than they were, but as Bernard Nathanson, one of the founders of the abortion movement, pointed out years later, we just made the numbers up and no uh, researching scientists ever fact-checked us. Just like the, the coat hanger it is a wonderful symbol for them, but it has no validity in truth. If you did try to use a, a coat hanger to induce an abortion, you're highly likely to perforate your uterus and you'll die of septicemia. Um, but it's a wonderful symbol, and it has become a symbol, and one has to accept that. But, but, what do you need to believe? You need to believe that the most important thing is that you follow your own desires. What you don't want to do is think about what is inside your uterus. And as a physician, what I thought about was the fact that the way you die if you have a septic, if you have a backstreet abortion, and the likelihood of dying is very high, is with a, a general septicemia. It's a horrible way to die with acute renal failure and septicemia. No one should die that way. If our society decides that abortion uh, has to be available, then it must be done properly. We cannot agree as a society to say, oh, you can go and kill yourself. If it's right, then we should do it properly. So if, you, if what you believe leads to that conclusion, and we are now a pluralist society, there's no dominance of one group over another, except the liberal elite who are actually a minority who are managing to win the battle by maneuvering. But it's being taken apart in your Senate and your congressional hearings every day, just watch them for a little bit and you see them lying through their teeth and, well, that's where we're at. So, um, I didn't think about it. I wanted it to be done properly. Any doctor who's seen a septic abortion will never forgets it. So, along the way, I met evangelical doctors who said, oh, abortion has got to be legalized, but they hadn't thought their way through it. Uh, it was simply that that case had been so written on their souls they, they couldn't possibly agree to anything that would lead to that conclusion. It's horrible. So we must admit that in theory at least, if abortion was made illegal, uh, septic abortions would go up and maternal uh, deaths would go up. In fact, there's been an experiment of nature. I'll refer to it at the end, but some of you will be more interested. You need to go look immediately. In, of all places, Chile, because they had uh, a, a period when abortion was banned and a period when it was not, and they even reversed it. And astonishingly, maternal death rate went down when abortion was banned. We can talk about why later. 
But if you want to get the details of that, and some of you will, the place to find it is with APLOG, uh, at AAPLOG, which is the Association of American Pro-Life Obs and Gynae. Um, and uh, you'll find a lot of material there, uh, including a complete description uh, by the guy who brought it all to life from Chile. So that's just an aside. So having set them up at that point and say, look, I acknowledge that if backstreet abortions came back, it would be horrible. I also say, but the numbers could never have been as high as they said, because the way you die is septicosemia and acute renal failure. And if the numbers were what they said they were, the renal de departments, diocese departments could not have coped, but it wasn't a problem. In fact, in four years in a nephrology department, uh, I didn't ever see a case of septic abortion uh, causing acute uh, renal failure. It's not anywhere near as common as it would be if their numbers were right, but the numbers are fudged. It were for a long while. So now but we now have to look at the consequences of abortion, which are usually not talked about. It's just assumed a woman has a problem, abortion fixes it. End of argument. But it's not. Uh, because there are consequences to that behavior. Now, the first thing that happened, of course, when abortion was legalized and they could have follow-up and the like, the women who were persuaded that abortion was the way out of their problem were told, look, it's a minor procedure. It's very safe. That's, both of those are true. Uh, think of it as something like having a tooth extraction. But some of the women came back and said, it doesn't feel trivial to me. I feel as though I killed my baby. What do you say? Now, the pro-choice people are all, all into feelings. What do you say to a woman who feels that she has killed her baby? She has. So it's a problem that they couldn't solve it at first. But then a very clever woman, a philosopher, Annette Bayer, said, look, we need to play with the words, which is what they always do. And so we have to pull apart the idea of a human being and a human person. And if I'm debating a smart feminist pro-choicer, she will, she will not argue that the point at which a new human being starts is at the point where the sperm penetrates the ovum. That's conception. That's when a unique mixture of DNA is produced, and from then on, it is purely development. That is the only moment in our lives at which we receive our personal genetic ID number if you like. We have a unique, well, the probability of it not being unique, I mean, we, we have 3.5 billion letters in our alphabet, in our in word base, in, in a strip of DNA. The odds of it getting the same sequence twice are very, very, very low. They're zero. So from then on, it's development. She said, but now we must start talking about persons. And persons should be developed defined in terms of function. This is subtle, but it's important. You become a person, the dominant, there are multiple definitions of person, and if you go and look them up in the literature, um, 
they're, they're all variants on the same sort of theme, but the dominant one is undoubtedly you become a person when you achieve certain characteristic abilities. In other words, it's dependent upon your performance. You don't have an intrinsic right to be. You have a dependent right to be, depending on whether you can relate or not. Relationship is usually used as the dominant way to decide when a human being has been formed. That's really very problematic. And its problems have been working their way through the system ever since. But he did get them off the hook. But it too carries its consequences, doesn't it? Once the idea that personhood was dependent upon function, then you have a problem because it's a progressive process. At what point does that happen? You could say, for instance, if you get a child who's gonna, never going to walk or talk or speak, they're never going to reach the level of personhood. That's going to make them vulnerable, and they are increasingly vulnerable now. That's what's happening. But it also means, why would you stop at 12 weeks or 22 weeks or any other weeks of pregnancy? If it's just a process going on all the way through, they're all very arbitrary points. And so we see that they said there's no slippery slope. Nobody would dare to say that now. The slope has become a ca cascade. So slowly it was pushed along. Then, of course, you could always fiddle the dates to fit the patient's needs a little bit. If you wanted abortion, you got it. And then, of course, we got to the point of discussing even partial birth abortion. I mean, if you want something that's really horrible to think about, the idea, and it's done, not that often, uh, but it's done uh, in the Western world, you can put it choker a large needle in the back of the neck of a baby whose body is already out and kicking and moving and pushed and that's the same as you pith it basically and it's dead and as long as the head is still in the birth canal it it comes under the heading abortion and there is no consequence to the people who do it now there have been moves in the states to ban it uh, i don't think they've actually worked yet um it's certainly not banned in Canada, and it's done around the world. But it, it's a purely logical process. Now, if you only become a person when your mother wants you because of your function, that has effects that are subtle but real. One of them is that you were a choice, and will you always live up to the, what your mother hoped her choice would bring? Of course, the answer is no. So it's not surprising that children are much more neurotic and much more anxious when that is deeply built into society. They, they we all understand much more than we think we do. So we, ha we have a, a whole generation, anybody born after in the States, 1973, um, well, 73, well, yes, uh, is different from me. I came into this world when there was no question about those things. Every baby had a right to be. So I was an arrogant little brat from the beginning, I imagine. I was here. People around me needed to take notice and do what I wanted. That's what children do. But that's not true anymore. And, of course, you couldn't actually stop infanticide. 
we had these sort of little foibles that we made it only for severe abnormality to begin with. But it, it's carrying on and there's nothing to stop it. And of course, the medical administrators are very pleased uh, that we're finding a way to get rid of the babies who won't want while they're still in utero using genetics. We're on our way to getting rid of all the children with predictable, serious uh, genetic disorders. About 30 of them at the moment are targeted. Cystic fibrosis, which was the dominant uh, genetically determined disease of Caucasian children, is dropping in numbers because once you have one baby with CF, you will be counseled afterwards so that if you get pregnant with another one, you can have an abortion and you will be strongly pressured to do so. That's the world we're in. So the first consequence of abortion was that it turned out to make us start thinking about definitions and it caused us to redefine ourselves. For, 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 for the people of the Judeo-Christian tradition, every child is a gift of God made by him for a particular reason which it's only to be understood in the light of eternity. Uh, that's, quite a, that's quite a different world from the one we inhabit now. If you don't want the baby, you get rid of it. And now if you don't want granny, you can get rid of her too. Uh, we've made. And people are asking it for themselves, not realizing what they're doing. So there has been a slippery slope. And if some of you listening to me now were unfortunate enough to get a herpes encephalitis tonight and wake up tomorrow with a, an IQ of 70, uh, they can get rid of you and they might well persuade uh, your family, made is the best way out of this and people will take it. So that has another important effect. So there's a slippery slope once you change the definition of human person. We need to talk about human beings, not human persons. A human being is what we need to preserve. We'll get human persons as part of the deal. If you start with human personhood, there's a lot of human beings who will not make it. And they have a role in the world, in my view, I think. What else it did was it changed intrinsic human rights into extrinsic human rights. It's worth thinking about for a moment. It changed intrinsic human rights to extrinsic human rights. In the Ten Commandments, in effect, human beings are given a right to life, a right to security, a right rights of all sorts. It's there in embryo. But now, your rights are dependent upon your mother wanting you for the first few years at any rate. So it has an effect on legislation at that level. Uh, and it certainly increases the uncertain self, and it led to the legalization of abortion, which is the next domino to fall. There's a whole row of dominoes that are going to go over. Before abortion legislation went through, the law was about justice and only about justice. But once that law went through, that was no longer the case because now we were killing a human being that we would not have done before. And certainly that unborn human being is not going to have any justice which they would recognize as justice. Arthur left the uh, 
Jewish guy that I quote frequently, I discovered only recently that he died relatively young, but he understood way back uh, in the late 70s that abortion legislation had made the law that the pursuit of power, not the pursuit of justice. And no one has more power than a woman who kills her baby. Having the power of life and death is the ultimate power because all, without the right to life, no other right is of any real meaning. They're not laid out as a smorgasbord. You have to be alive to have human rights. If your mother can kill you, if your family can kill you, lots of people can kill you, those rights become increasingly tenuous. And that has happened. At the end of, well, the opening line is, is this is just to get you going and looking up. Arthur left 1978, Duke Law Review, Justice will find it for you. But he begins that amazing lecture by saying, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete immanent, that means accessible to you, immanent set of propositions about right and wrong that direct us as how to live our lives righteously. But I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing but rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. That's the one world, isn't it? Wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and be. What we want, heaven help us, is to be simultaneously perfectly free and perfectly ruled. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to invent it. The difference between pro-choices and pro-lifers at heart, is that pro-life people believe that good is given to us a gift which we discover. Pro-choices believe that the good is what we desire and we make it so by law. But Lef is honest and he then does 30 pages of lucid prose, weighing the pros and cons of these two positions at the end as a very sad penultimate pair of paragraphs. He's at He's at Yale in the days when social Darwinianism was even more dominant than it is now. It is fading now. And he says, with a nod to Darwin, it looks to me as though we, have all, all, we are all that we have. There is no God. There is nothing behind us. We just have a life now, and then it's over, and it's finished. But he's honest. He's got a Jewish background. He says... Looking around the world, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. If brotherly love exists, the ruling model appears to be Cain and Abel. And most of the children in your class won't even know the story of Cain and Abel, so they don't understand what he's saying. He'd got to a wrong conclusion from a rigorous uh, essay. He knew what he should do, which is go back and say, because we all know that that is not true, it cannot be that we are alone. But he couldn't do it. He acknowledges it in the part final, totally uh, incoherent sentence where he says, nevertheless, there is such a thing as evil in this world. Objective evil, objective good. They went down the plug hole with abortion. They were already there. They just worked themselves through. What comes next? Well, next is not really the right word, but the next one that, that came to me was the realization that the animal rights movement is frequently a substitute, a sort of working out repentance by penance 
an awful lot of the people who lead the animal rights movement have had abortions. There has to be a reason for that. Now, the person who thought about it most clearly, fortunately for me, the first time I thought about this was actually whilst giving this lecture at Harvard, and I never put this point in before. But then into my head popped a piece of poetry that I had not used for years from one of Harvard's favorite sons, Robert Frost, who understood what was going on, and he said it as only he could. He'd been watching hornets on his farm and got stung, they're territorial. Um, that's the first part of the poem, The White-Tailed Hornet. But there he went back when he'd found uh, how close he could go without getting stung because he, he liked watching them. And the next bit of the poem, he was watching a, a hornet attack the remains of a nail in the barn wall, and he thought, oh, my goodness, I've been anthropomorphizing this insect because he shouldn't have been shocked that it didn't know the difference. It had a bunch of reflexes. They didn't fit that environment. And for a little while, uh, the hornet tried that and then flew off and went for more reasonable objectives. But he then wrote this. He, he realised that we're not just a bunch of instincts, like instincts, like the insects. He said, won't this instinct matter bear revision? Won't almost any theory bear revision? To err is human, not to animal. That really takes away instead of gives. Huh? Conscientiousness, worship, and humor went long since to the dogs under the table and served us right for having instituted downward comparisons. As long on earth as our comparisons were stoutly upwards, with men and angels we were, uh, with, God, with, with gods and angels we were men at least. But once our comparisons were yielded downwards into the mud and even dust, disillusion upon disillusion. We were lost piecemeal to the animals, like people thrown out to delay the wolves. Only our fallibility was left us, and this day's work makes that seem doubtful. He got it, and he even saw that this process was going to undermine humour. As long as we are all fallen creatures, and we all accept that, then we can laugh at our faults. But once we are princes of the earth, we get angry when people say anything we don't like. So the university now is a humour-free zone. That doesn't make it... A, that's not an improvement. Most humour is pushing at little bits of us that aren't as good as they could be. And we all have them because we're all fallen creatures. And it's good. It releases tension. But now that's gone in the university. Don't laugh here. It's not a humorous place. There was lots of laughter when I was in school. Always at somebody's expense. Often mine. But that didn't matter. It was good. What's the next one to go down? Well, uh, you have a problem, don't you, with compassion for the handicap? I remember on one occasion, my, my one clinic a week that I did was for severely disabled children, mainly with problems of maintaining their body weight and the like, but other biochemical abnormalities as well. And on one occasion... Uh, a mum came in with her baby, who, to be uh, honest about it, was not a pretty sight to look at at first. But it was her baby, and she loved it and looked after it. She wasn't rich. She came on the bus, and 
She'd, she was obviously upset. I said, what's the matter? And she said, a woman on the bus looked at my baby and said, why didn't you get that thing taken away? And what kind of society have we got to when we say things like that? Almost certainly, I said to her, look, I think I can help you understand that a little bit. Almost certainly, that woman who said that had had an abortion. She had got rid of a perfectly healthy baby, probably. You know that. But looking at you, allowing your maternal instinct to work its way out in the service of that child was a slap in the face to her, telling her, you made a huge mistake. That's what they do to us. That's what they're there for. And I think and only a Christian can handle, I think, the most serious problems that children face because some of them are horrendous. But the Lord tells us that one day you will understand it all. Ah. And I certainly know that in my life, suffering children have been important to me. Ah. But it becomes less and less safe to say anything about that aspect of life. So compassion is diminished inevitably. And people want to get it out of the way as quickly as possible. That's why so many doctors are buying into MAID. Dying is important if there's something else that you need to prepare for before you go. If there's nothing, then get out of here quickly. That's purely rational. But as Robert Smith once said to me, there is more um, repentance, reconciliation in the last six weeks of life than there are in the whole of the rest of life. We know that. When someone knows they're going to die, they look, they, they start, they inevitably will start thinking about their life and they'll think about some of the times when they weren't as good as they should have been. And they'll reach out. It's, it's, a, it's a time of healing when it's properly handled, but we will have less, so we'll have more and more psychiatric uh, disease, it will be called, but it's actually moral consequence a lot of it. Ferguson, the psychiatrist in uh, New Zealand, who's you know a liberal, but he said, I can't be silent any longer. There is no question that the increased rate of depression in women has got a lot to do with abortion. It is the trigger for many um, depressive disorders. And he got this was before counselling came along, but he took a lot of plaque for that. But nobody said he was wrong or proved that he was wrong. That life is morally consequential. So we will, we're losing, as Jordan Peterson has realised, not by this sequence, but by a psychological sequence. We have lost meaning in life. We cannot live without meaning. And we cannot live without some understanding of suffering because we all have to go through it. And what we were talking about earlier before we started this section, uh, the, the figures you had for your valley in Idaho, that vast majority, almost a majority of children are either depressed or contemplating suicide and the like. Certainly people everywhere in the medical profession say, well, it's certainly above 30%. And what's even worse, even the, the top 70%, most of them have no... No joie de vivre of teenagers. Where that's the time when you knew you were going to fix the world and get everything right. It's gone. 
uh, I hope he comes back. Um, now, when I've done this sequence, all I have to say to the audience is, I have laid out two worlds for you. Which one do you want to give to your children? And, of course, the answer is ours. The room goes silent. I've never had an aggressive question at the end of the lecture. Not one. I have more time than I had today, in a way. And, and the tension builds, but it's effective. More than once I've had one of the pro-choice leaders of the student group say, I've never heard it put that way. I don't know what to say. But they're on their way. If they commit to truth, they'll get there. That's why atheists are closer to uh, Christianity than the nothings who have no existential understanding at all or even think about it. The mind has to come to life before we can be truly human. So I said I would add two things at the end. Uh, one is the the MRR, uh, the data for maternal mortality rates from Chile that you can find on APLOG. And here are some of the other things that you can look up. Um, the, this, uh, the World Mortality Report will give you figures on maternal mortality and infant mortality. And it, it's interesting that uh, the, 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 the one that I've got in my notebook, I haven't updated it for a while, but Ireland, which had no abortion at that stage, uh, had the lowest maternal mortality rates and the one of the lowest uh, uh, infant mortality, uh, the lowest infant mortality rate. It should not have been like that if what they say is right. Public opinion in Canada, uh, this was oh, some 20 years ago, 33% uh, of the population at that time thought protection should be from conception. 24% uh, thought it should be from 12 weeks, i.e. 57% no abortion after 12 weeks. 60% of the women and 53% of the men. Uh, abortion um, mortality, uh, what's this one? Uh, in the year, that's an interesting phenomenon. The, the year following an abortion, uh, maternal mortality uh, is three times higher in the group that had the abortion than in the group that didn't. So what's going on? Accidents, suicide, drugs, whatever. 300% increase in maternal mortality in the year after the abortion. Accidents go up dramatically. Natural death is only slightly higher because people who have abortions come from a less healthy group anyway. Suicide is 600% increased. This is data from 1997 from the uh, Scandinavian literature. Homicide interestingly, is up 1,400%. It's unbelievable figures. That's from Acta Obstetrica Gynecologica Scandinavica, 1997, volume 76, pages 651 to 657. And the other data that's worth Americans pursuing is um, why has abortion been voted down at local levels so frequently? It's because the politicians know what things will not get them elected, and that is changing, but in, there were multiple attempts to get abortion literature through from the 1960s to 1978, 
Um, when it came to a referendum, pro-choice always lost. So there's some ways you can go about thinking about abortion and talking about it. And get back to me, if you, if you will, please. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you've enjoyed this, think about sharing it with a friend. And we appreciate you guys. We hope this is helpful, and we'll see you guys next week. Oh,